Today on the My Climate Journey Capital Series, our guest is Mohammed Barkeshli, Vice President of Full Consequence Investing at Hall Capital Partners. Hall Capital Partners has a singular focus of building and managing large investment portfolios. Their clients are families, endowments, and foundations. In fact, they've got about 130 clients and over $40 billion under management. Now, Mohammed focuses on the firm's impact investing efforts, which they call full consequence investing. He's responsible for research, identification, due diligence, and ongoing monitoring of investments across asset classes. We have a great discussion in this episode about Hall Capital's approach, where it fits in the climate tech capital stack, the criteria they use when they make investment decisions, what they're hearing from their families and clients now and how that's evolved over time, and also what Mohammed thinks some changes could be that could help accelerate progress and see more capital going into full consequence investing and other areas of impact. But first... I'm Cody Sims. I'm Yin Liu. And I'm Jason Jacobs. And welcome to My Climate Journey. This show is a growing body of knowledge focused on climate change and potential solutions. In this podcast, we traverse disciplines, industries, and opinions to better understand and make sense of the formidable problem of climate change and all the ways people like you and I can help. Okay, Mohammed Barkeshli, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. Longtime listener, uh, first time caller, as they say. Well, thanks for coming. And um, it's funny. Uh, I mean, obviously, we've done hundreds of episodes um, on this pod, um, but the the bulk of them have been, well, super wide range. But what we haven't done a lot of is LPs that are allocating capital to climate. And, and part of that is because LPs in general, it's kind of a black box. A lot of them aren't out there much talking about their work. And Hall Capital is a good example of a really important firm in the space that most of our listeners have probably never heard of. Um, so I'm just, I'm really grateful that you're making the time to come on. Personally, I have a ton of questions and a lot to learn. And, and I, I think there's a lot of others um, that are in my shoes as well. So you're doing us a great service and hopefully we can do you service and, and um, enable more people to get to know the great work that, that you're doing as well. Great. I agree. I think more transparency from the LP community helps everyone downstream. So that's the idea. I mean, before we jump in, why don't you think more LPs are out talking publicly about what they do? And, and then conversely, why did you say yes to coming on this show? So I don't know if I can speak for the whole LP community. I think, you know, from our seat as an outsourced chief investment office, our business is one that's really bought and not sold. You can't really sell people on the idea of a diversified multi-asset class portfolio if they don't want it. So we're not trying to, you know, there's typically few marketing benefits to talking publicly. We're pretty engaged and involved with other LPs in our own community. Um, and that's where we see most of our impact. Um, you know, when we're talking about climate-related strategies or investment opportunities, it just hasn't been something where, you know, being public-facing has been necessary. But I think, you know, in this sort of emerging space, uh, as I mentioned, having more transparency about how LPs think and evaluate um, investment strategies and look at 
the underlying businesses that those strategies hold and invest in is probably just helpful for everybody. This is an ecosystem that's, you know, collaborative. And so part of the reason I said yes here was obviously really respect the work you all are doing on this, on this journey. Um, but also wanted to shed some light on some of our thinking for, for this community at large. Awesome. Well, I'm glad you did. So for starters, maybe just talk a bit about Hall Capital, the firm, what you do, and and of course your role uh, within the firm as well, just so, so that we get some context to listeners. Sure. So we're a $40 billion outsourced chief investment office for you know high net worth families um, and some endowments and foundations. Um, Katie Hall started this firm almost, I think almost 30 years ago now with the backing of a handful of uh, prominent San Francisco families, uh, but it's now grown to you know over 100, 130 clients, and we're kind of known for our customized investment strategies and innovative solutions that are you know that we design to help clients achieve financial goals. We don't have a one size fits all allocation or model portfolio, but we build customized multi asset class portfolios for each of our clients or each pool of capital within each client relationship. So it's really a comprehensive relationship that we have with our clients. We provide uh, a range of advisory services, financial planning, tax planning, estate planning, um, but we don't really do any direct investing. We're typically investing our clients' capital across funds as limited partners. So for me, it's a really great window seat into the investment management universe where you know we evaluate, we select, and ultimately allocate to managers with various strategies across, you know, fixed income, public equities, hedge funds, private credit, as well as private equity, venture, real estate, really, you name it, um, we look at it and we we allocate to it. So, um, you know, going back almost, I think, exactly 10 years ago, when sort of a next leg of impact investing was taking hold, um, and there was a lot of discussion about impact investing, if you recall, socially responsible investing, philanthropic investing, divestment campaigns, et cetera, we at Hall had a, you know, I was an analyst back then, but we had a lot of frustration with the way people were using these terms because these things sort of meant very different things to different people. And I remember being in meetings with either a client or investment manager where, you know, you mentioned the word impact investing and sort of you'd get a question of, oh, since when are you not interested in making money? So we had a lot of frustration with that and we ended up devising our own terminology and methodology which we call full consequence investing. Not that the world needs sort of more jargon in this space, but it was a way for us to talk about, you know, the effort to capture what people were trying to do or what the goals of ESG investing was, which was to really incorporate much more sort of explicitly and holistically other factors into investment decision-making processes. And we wanted to, you know, talk about that and, and what we were saying by uh, full consequence investing, which internally we call FCI for short, was that if investors are really taking into account all of the consequences of a given investment, thinking deeply about sustainable use of capital, human capital, financial capital, physical capital, then you actually reach, quote unquote, the right answer from the ESG perspective, regardless of what you call it. So, you know, we have a spectrum as we look at a multi-asset class portfolio of investors that, you know, where ESG factors or FCI factors are central 
to sort of their investment thesis and what they're doing and where, you know, it's one of many factors more from a risk mitigation perspective. Um, so that's what I focus full time on. And in terms of, you know, the, the, what that translates to its investment opportunities across asset classes that have to do with climate change, um, that have to do with education access, healthcare, and financial inclusion, affordable housing, sort of all of the social environmental challenges that are longer term. Got it. And when it comes to um, your client base, is there a minimum threshold of assets that it makes sense to work with a firm like Hall Capital? Because I tend to ask questions and choose for for whatever reason. Um, and this is probably just more of a general um, uh, portfolio construction question, but um, at, at what a size of assets does it make sense to go beyond the basics of just like um, st- stocks and bonds? So alternative assets, for example, is there is there a, a a threshold below which you should have zero alternative assets unless it's a hobby versus an investment? Yeah, those two questions are probably more interrelated than 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 they sound. And the the second one is hard to answer from a for, in terms of the size of our clients. You know, for our business to make sense. And this relates to your second question for us to be able to build a truly diversified multi-asset class portfolio, the size of sort of capital should probably be above hundred million. So, you know, our, you know, if you look at, we have about 130 clients across, you know, $40 billion that gets you a sense for the average size of that client. Obviously we have some that are way larger, and some that are maybe a little smaller than that average. Um, but it, it relates to your second question in terms of where can you actually build a truly diverse, diversified portfolio? And we think that's, you know, at that level. And oh, by the way, you know, different pools within uh, our client relationships, you know, if this is a grandchildren's trust, you might not have the size of assets to do alternatives. And that's, that's okay. You know, I would say a factor that goes into whether alternatives or, you know, private allocation, for example, is prudent for a given portfolio has to do with how much a client or, or, or an individual within a client relationship needs in sort of life expenses over a foreseeable future. And that usually dictates a cash and fixed income allocation. And that's usually a dollar amount. Um, not sort of a percentage. And that is a constraint around which we have to work, right? If we have X amount in cash and fixed income, how much liquidity trade-offs can we afford in this portfolio? How much do we want to go sort of beyond that in alternative asset classes? And given that the alternative asset landscape is, well, maybe it's even broader than alternative asset, there's so many different funky places to put Capital. Uh, I mean, there's like that's what makes my job interesting. Project. For, for, I, I won't. I won't even know all the uh, even a little sliver of all the all the different places. Um, if you look at the landscape of investment firms, do people generally have the same buckets for the same um, asset sizes, or does it vary greatly across firms? And and um and and what are the key buckets for for Hall? And and I guess. The asterisk is you already said that everything's custom, but is it really custom? Like, is it custom within the the same typical buckets or is it really custom where it's like all over the map? I don't think it's all over the map. (laughs) Um, 
you know, the the typical buckets that we're allocating to in terms of asset classes are fixed income, public equities, hedge funds, which could be, you know, credit oriented or credit and equity, as well as private credit, which sometimes we call hybrid, as well as private equity, venture capital, private real estate, and, you know, things on the margin that might sort of be crossovers between these asset classes. Um, within each asset class, we tend to be quite concentrated in, certain, in terms of the set of relationships with investment managers that we have. And so we're not keen on, you know, diligencing and, um, and you know, approving an investment strategy that then ends up going in sort of one small pool within our AUM. Um, that's just not a good use of anyone's time and resources. And so maybe this is getting to your second question, but we tend to think about those asset classes and then think about the set of investment manager relationships that comprise our options within those asset classes. And then where it's really customized is the allocation of an of a client to each of those asset classes or among the option set of investment managers within each asset class. So I think what I'm hearing from you is uh, that you take the diligence part of that process very seriously. And so to put the Hall Capital stamp on it or whatever the internal lingo that you use is a big deal and, and really means something. And since it takes a lot of work to do it, you don't want to do it unless you can put real capital to work across your client base. And then for each client, um, you know, if they have their own relationship or their own fund or whatever, their brother-in-law started something, then then uh, you know, then maybe there's um, exceptions that maybe don't go through your process. But if it if it goes through your process, you want to utilize it broadly. And then it's the allocation that changes more than the um, the the fund, in, in, unless it's an extenuating circumstance that I just mentioned, like there's some relationship or other reason why it it doesn't make sense for that client. Is that right? That's correct. Our investment research function, which sort of looks at the universe of investment managers and evaluates them, does diligence and selects who we want to partner with, that's pretty centralized. Where you get a lot of customization, as you say, is in the allocations to those managers across the different asset class buckets. And, you know, we start with a place of we don't have to be everywhere or do anything. So it's really a matter of when we looking at we're looking at an opportunity, really thinking through the investment opportunity set, what is driving it, and then looking at thinking about whether you know we think that opportunity set is something that's available sustainably over time, or if it's you know more of a trade for this year and next year, and then thinking through the people, the players involved, um, who's doing it well. What's the evidence of success that they're doing it well? These are investment practices, investment discipline, track record, history, all of all of the good stuff that you've heard about. Um, but it's also about understanding the organization, right? So what makes an organization tick? How are people compensated? And that's really part of our judgment of the probability um, that a team might be successful executing on an investment opportunity. Um, and, you know, we source these things sort of everywhere and any way we can. We cast a pretty wide net, but we're also, you know, we have a reputation now going back 30 years. So we're pretty well known at this point and we get a lot of 
inbound. I think, I don't know if I have the numbers for uh, this last year, but for the year before, I think we received close to sort of a thousand sets of new materials from new funds, excluding our existing relationships. So we get to really look at everything. And then to your point, look at who we want to partner with, where do we want to make an incremental investment? And then our portfolio managers for a given client decide um, where they want to allocate from a given balance sheet. Now, you said that that um, investment research function is centralized. You also said that um, that that there's all these different types of vehicles from real estate to hedge funds to PE and venture capital and public equities. Uh, and I, I probably missed some. Um, so is the, are the members of that investment research team generalists that can evaluate all of these asset classes? Or do you have specific people assigned to specific asset classes that are experts in those areas? And since I ask questions in twos, I'm going to ask you the same thing about the full consequence side and 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 your and your work and 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 how that interrelates. So we have a, you know, I think a twenty person investment research team. We divide that team across or group across different asset class teams. So exactly to your point, we have a public equities team, a private equity and venture team, a real estate and real assets team, and what we call sort of an absolute return and credit team, which covers fixed income to private credit to hedge funds. And then we have two smaller teams that are cross-asset class and multidisciplinary. One is uh, a, a group that does a lot of our macro work. So, you know, there's a oil price shock. There's a war in Ukraine. You know, that's not a private equity issue. That's not a public equities issue, but it has implications for all of the above. So you need sort of a cross-disciplinary group to look at that and, and try to translate that. And the other one is full consequence investing. That's my team. So we are cross-asset class, multidisciplinary. And the idea behind that is not to say that, oh, all of this ESG work or climate-related work should be siloed in this one corner and they take care of it and everyone else does business as usual. No, everyone in each asset class team is fluent in some of our diligence in full consequence investing, but we think there's value in having someone who is sort of bilingual in both sort of financial investment diligence as well as impact and ESG diligence who can help teams compare opportunities across asset classes and compare best practices when you're looking at a climate-related private equity strategy versus a climate-related you know, private credit strategy. You want to be able to translate some of those learnings across asset classes. And that's what you know, I help with and what our, what our team helps with. Now, this, this macro work and the FCI team, see, I already know the internal hall uh, lingo, um, but but the, these teams, are, are they people that come out of the asset classes or what backgrounds would one want for the macro team and for the FCI team? Uh, and to be honest, I don't even have a guess. I'm really curious the answer. Yeah, no, it's, it's, a, lot, it's a good question and, and different organizations do it differently. We um, are pretty committed to having this be integrated across all of our investment process. So, so the idea that there would be a silo here doesn't sit well with us. So the, you know, the head of our macro team, which we call cross-asset research, is also the co-head of our public equities team. So there's synergies between those. 
And you can imagine why that might make sense given the sort of liquidity and daily nature of both efforts. Um, the, you know, Lizzie Fisher Marshall, who heads up my team, is also the co-head of private equity and venture. And that is historically because, you know, a lot of the sort of reps we get in terms of looking at opportunities that have to do with social or environmental opportunity sets come from early stage venture or private equity. That's because those asset classes tend to have longer time horizons, which match the time horizons of these social and environmental challenges. They tend to have better control, more control over the businesses that they invest in with a more you know, partnership approach that's inherently engagement focused. And so um, it just made sense to have that overlap. I worked in different parts of the organizations at Hall. I was actually part of the portfolio management group early on when I started, then switched over to our investment research. I worked on that macro team, the first iteration of it. And so got to know different asset classes throughout that. And then when I went off to get my MBA at Stanford and, and did some direct investing work, I worked on, you know, in private credit myself at community investment management uh, with a focus on financial inclusion and impact. Uh, and I worked on uh, private infrastructure investing with, you know, mostly looking at transportation and water infrastructure. Uh, and I worked at a sovereign wealth fund looking at sustainability related businesses. So I thought, you know, I think having the right combination of people working on this, that doesn't become this silo, you know, we're only fluent in ESG speak and don't really speak other investment related topics, um, could be harmful. And we're trying to avoid that. Now, uh, when you think about your existing client base and directionally where you aspire to go as a firm, and, and you also think about um, how you want prospective clients to think about you and Hall, where does... I don't know whether to use the word impact or the proprietary impact word, uh, but but the uh, I'll say FCI. Um, where does that fit into the Hall Capital story and brand? It's definitely part of our. We view it as part of our secret sauce, and you know everything we do, every investment that we approve has to have at least a table stakes amount of ESG integration. This is in line with our philosophy, why we came up with the sort of terminology of full consequence investing. The idea is that if you're a long-term fundamental investor, let's say you're investing in, you know, industrials businesses in Europe, you're invested in a cement plant or a steel plant, and you're not thinking about the risks coming from decarbonization and energy transition and the technology that's sort of revolutionizing that space, you're probably just not a good investor, right? You can do that at least from a risk mitigation perspective. And, you know, you can also use that as a lens to identify opportunities. The parallel I sometimes draw is with, you know, the moniker technology investing, right? Every investment job is also a technology investment job. If you're invested in any business and you're not thinking about at least the risks arising from competing technologies, you're just not doing your job that well. 
But you can also be a technology expert in the same way that you can be an environmental climate expert and say, hey, I have some views about where this decarbonization trend is going. I have some views about the shape of the energy transition over the coming decades. And I can invest behind that, not just from a risk mitigation perspective, but as a way and as a lens to identify compelling opportunities. So in my end state, and as I think about Hall in the future, you know, FCI is not something that you would even have to name. It just becomes part of good long-term fundamental investing. Um, and, and I think that's sort of, that's always been our philosophy. I think as there is wealth transition coming up over the next decades, as uh, a younger generation of asset owners come into their own and focus more on some of these risks as well as opportunities, this is going to become only more relevant, you know, despite the emerging culture wars around it. But I think we view it as sort of fully integrated in how we invest and how a long-term investor should view their portfolio. You mentioned that within full consequence, there are some different impact lanes. Uh, when you look at this portfolio of, what did you say, 130 clients, clients uh, do, does FCI get involved in every one of them? Is Okay, so every, 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 every one of them. So, so if, I find, a, if I find a compelling private infrastructure opportunity that's looking at, you know, infrastructure transactions that are related to the energy transition and decarbonization, I underwrite that as an investment opportunity. I kick the tires on making sure they're thoughtful on impact, thoughtful on climate assessment, environmental impact assessment, all of that. And it might be, you know, what we call FCI central, as in, you know, the FCI factors are central to the management team's investment thesis. I underwrite that as an investment that is compelling on its own. And so I would, you know, we would allocate to that opportunity across all of our clients, regardless of whether they have a climate passion or not. And so, you know, sizing might differ depending on that passion, back to the point of where customization matters. Um, but it's rare where we, you know, make an investment that would be very relevant to our full consequence investing work, but only allocate to it from a subset of our clients. There is definitely degrees. I, you know, I want to be transparent about that, especially when you get to other, you know, maybe climate is not a great example because it really is pervasive across every aspect of life. But when you look at, you know, education, for example, investments in education or affordable housing, that might be sized differently or go in certain portfolios where um, the asset owner uh, has a more explicit focus on that type of work and opportunity. Hey, everyone, I'm Yin, a partner at MCJ Collective, here to take a quick minute to tell you about our MCJ membership community, which was born out of a collective thirst for peer-to-peer -peer learning and doing that goes beyond just listening to the podcast. We started in 2019 and have grown to thousands of members globally. Each week, we're inspired by people who join with different backgrounds and points of view. What we all share is a deep curiosity to learn and a bias to action around ways to accelerate solutions to climate change. Some awesome initiatives have come out of the community. A number of founding teams have met, several nonprofits have been established, and a bunch of hiring has been done. Many early stage investments have been made, as well as ongoing events and programming, like monthly women in climate meetups, idea jam sessions for early stage founders, climate book club, art workshops, and more. Whether you've been in the climate space for a while or just embarking on your journey, 
Having a community to support you is important. If you want to learn more, head over to mcjcollective.com and click on the members tab at the top. Thanks and enjoy the rest of the show. So should I think of FCI as a category of products that you could offer to clients or is it a key diligence box, if you will, for any product that is offered to um, to Hall Capital clients, or or is it is it both or either? It's definitely a key diligence uh, effort across all of our diligence efforts, and it's one where we've identified that it would be helpful to have dedicated resources because, it, you know it overlaps with so many other things that aren't necessarily in the core toolkit of a you know financial diligence effort and so you know we don't think about it as a separate product category um, we don't really think about our work as products even we're we're partners with our clients to try to solve their financial goals and we think this is a key aspect of being and executing a successful investment strategy. And if I wanted to double click on FCI and try to immerse myself and listeners in what it means to be FCI and the lens through which Hall Capital um, evaluates these investments um, from an FCI standpoint, can you Take a stab at that. Just just explaining uh, what falls within FCI and how you evaluate these opportunities across categories. Yes. So as I mentioned, there's a spectrum when we think about these topics, right? There's investment. There are investment strategies where, let's say, climate considerations and climate risk is one of many factors considered during the risk diligence of a given investment. And so let's say you're a private equity shop focused on um, financials, right? And you invest in businesses that sell to banks or are, you know, related to the credit landscape and lending landscape, or you invest in insurance businesses. You, we make sure that your investment process as that investment team incorporates a thoughtful level of, you know, call it ESG diligence, understanding who are the, you know, what are the best practices when you look at a debt collecting business? How do you make sure that you're not running into some externality risk? You're not running into some regulatory risk. You're not running into governance risks. How do you make sure that if you're invested in a bank, that that bank is not in an outsized way financing emissions and might run into risks that arise from either regulatory or changing landscapes or the stranded assets of those businesses that are being financed, right? That's risk mitigation. And we help ask those questions and conduct that diligence. That's one end of the spectrum. And not that it's binary, it's really a continuum, but other end of the spectrum is no, I invest in fintech businesses. Let's say keep with the financials, right? There's a maybe a venture capital team that invests in fintech businesses 
that are really designed to serve underserved low-income communities or provide financial access to small businesses that are otherwise ill-served by traditional banks. Or back to climate, I you know, am a venture capital group that invests in innovative carbon capture technologies, right? That's really my mandate. I look at mitigation, adaptation, and removal, if it's a broader mandate. But that's not risk mitigation. That's identification of investment opportunities through that lens that has to do with the same underlying sort of toolkit, uh, which relates to FCI. So double-clicking on FCI to your question, you know, it's really making sure that our, all of our investment managers, regardless of their mandates and investment strategies, are incorporating a thoughtful level of risk mitigation when it comes to climate considerations or social challenges, labor issues, regulatory risk, all of the above. But on the other end of the spectrum, managers that are really pursuing explicit impact, be it in the form of emissions reductions or in the form of you know better outcomes for healthcare and education, while at the same time, you know, pursuing financial returns. I'm curious about the decision to to go with this kind of branded definition of impact. Does that imply that that there are some distinct differences between the Hall Capital FCI approach and say traditional ESG? Well, one is under our control and we can define what we're talking about. And one is subject to sort of the ether, right? And you're, we ran into that 10 years ago, and I think we're running into it again now with the, you know, whatever you call it, ESG backlash, which by the way, I think, you know, is to an extent healthy, right? But we wanted to be able to really name what the effort was and what people were trying to do when we're talking about ESG investing, which is again, to incorporate much more explicitly and holistically, these other factors, externalities, and social environmental challenges into the investment decision-making process. And the ESG debate, you know, call it FCI, call it ESG, call it, you know, responsible investing, whatever you call it, is sort of intractable in the abstract, Jason, right? I've never been able to convince someone of the merits of ESG and FCI by just looking at a meta-analysis of performance over time for different strategies that identify themselves as one versus the other. But it's really quite clear when you're looking at the investment decision level, right? If you're a car company today and you're looking at sort of where does my market share growth come from, right? Like EVs are an obvious investment decision. That's not an ESG decision. And I don't care if it's an ESG decision or not. It's just sort of a reality of that business decision. You're, you know, that's true across industrials, it's true across consumer businesses. If you're looking at supply chains and transparency there and the shifting sort of preferences of consumers around all this, it's true in everything that touches climate, right? These are not necessarily, you know, from an economic perspective, good or bad decisions. They're just decisions that make sense. And when you have a holistic view, an explicit view, around incorporating these factors into your decision-making, it just kind of becomes obvious in the specific instance. And that's what we're trying to find and, and kick the tires on. 
And given that that climate in particular is uh, a bit unique in that it's not really a vertical, it, it, it's an area of expertise, but it stretches across every vertical. And so uh, given that, if a client were to come to you and say, for example, I, I mean, maybe five years ago, how I was feeling before I started on my climate journey or now M MCJ for, for, for short, similar to FCI, right? Um, so I was feeling like, man, there's this like drumbeat of bad news and the scientific community is foaming at the mouth and no one's listening, but I don't really understand the nature of the problem. I don't really understand the best ways to address it. I don't really understand what I can do to help. So if a client were to come to you and, and say, look, I, I want to invest with, you know, with, with, with more of, uh, uh, of this lens in mind, but I don't understand it and I don't come in with specific opinions or or knowledge what what guidance do you provide and, and how much of a point of view does hall take given the amount of debate that occurs even from you know from from reason you know well-reasoned experts on on all sides of an issue yeah let me think through how I, you know i could answer that in a specific let's say we want to invest around the theme of energy transition right which touches climate related investing across asset classes Right. We first look at, okay, how do we produce energy? How do we transmit energy? How do we meet our end users? Where is that energy demand coming from and what's the composition of it? And then what are the emissions that come out of those end uses? Right. And so if you have a view, for example, as you mentioned, you're a client, you come in and you say, I want to, I want to make sure my investments are geared towards reducing emissions. It's one thing to say, Hey, come, you know, invest in this one fund that is doing decarbonization technology at the very early stage. It's another thing to look systemically and say, you know, you have public equity exposure to energy producers or energy transmission businesses. Let's make sure those investors that you're invested with have an engagement focus such that they're engaging, the, you know, the oil and gas producer to make sure they have some path towards transition. Let's make sure if you're invested in real estate that, you know, that's an end use, right? And it has a lot of emissions. Let's make sure your real estate, private real estate managers are making sure that their buildings are coming, upgrading up to the best standards for emissions reductions. And that's, by the way, you know, carbon emissions, as well as waste, as well as water use, et cetera. Let's make sure that you know, if you're invested in manufacturing businesses in your uh, in other parts of your portfolio, that those investors are doing it with a thoughtful lens towards the risks that arise from decarbonization and from the technology boom happening in alternative ways of manufacturing things. And so, it's really a holistic view. Our our client portfolios reflect in a lot of ways the broader economy. We don't take sort of a, you know, I might've mentioned this before, but we don't take like a divestment approach. Let's say, let's clean up your portfolio, um, make sure it doesn't have any emissions. You're not invested in any energy or any real estate that emits anything. But the real world out there, the economy at large hasn't changed, right? Just, you just, you just washed your hands in your portfolio. That's a legitimate approach. And, and I'm not against that, but I think, a better approach and one where 
trying to do is really tackle that systemically across your portfolio. So you might own, you know, ExxonMobil, right? But you want to make sure you're engaging at the right activist level with the board of ExxonMobil so that they can come up with a transition path. People can argue and our managers can have different views about the validity of those paths and those plans. But we think that engagement, that stewardship is part of the answer if you're, if you're you know, trying to build a portfolio that's geared towards climate change. Does that help answer that question? It does. And it's not an easy question to answer since there's uh, so much nuance. Uh, and, and also you could, you, it's like, well, it depends if you're looking at this area or that area or this type or that, or this family type of family or that type. Well, the good news, Jason, is, you know, when, when we started doing this work 10 years ago, or even going back five or six years ago, if you wanted to build a multi-asset class portfolio that was, that had a climate theme, it was really difficult. You know, the available options that were compelling were mostly in early stage venture and technology. And then some, you know, maybe public equities that were you know, not necessarily having impact in terms of real world outcomes, but they owned, let's say, renewables businesses versus fossil fuel businesses. But today, you know, you have a lot more options across asset classes. There have been a lot of interesting investment groups, investment talent that have come together to tackle climate-related opportunities across asset classes. So you have, you know, private credit strategies that are scaling out, you know, you mentioned project finance early on that are scaling out, you know, residential solar, um, and we have exposure to that. Um, There are infrastructure investments that are very much related to this theme. There's public equities, as I mentioned, uh, public equity strategies that have a real engagement focus other than just sort of owning the right things. But let's, you know, now let's own things and engage with them to improve them. There are opportunities across real estate, across uh, really, you name it, all of our asset class buckets, where you can have a credible and compelling portfolio that's really geared towards climate change and doesn't have, in our view at least, um, sort of return trade-offs, but is well set up to take advantage of this humongous theme that we have over the next decades called decarbonization. Now, there are some types of investment. So I'll share a bit of what I've observed, but but I I, I want to make sure before I ask you a question associated with it that that you that we calibrate and, and have observed the same thing. Um, that that there's some types of investments that are important from an impact standpoint, but look like if you're just looking to make money, like uh, there's there's better places to to put that capital. And then there's some that it's like oh that's going to print money, but like is it really doing good for the world? And then there's this you know this kind of middle ground where you can, you know, find things that do good for the world while also um, not compromising on returns for that asset class. Uh, First of all, do you you agree with with what I just said? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So you do. Um, So so the question is, um, does FCI only comprise that middle bucket um, or are there times where you would either recommended investment as Hall Capital that um, uh, that that maybe doesn't encompass FCI, but is going to generate attractive returns, or the other way that might be more 
and again, I'll throw out some buzzwords here, but be more catalytic or or concessionary in nature, where where it's driving impact explicitly, maybe even at the expense of of returns. Those are three great different questions. So let me take them. <laughs> Sorry, <laughs> take them, take them all away. I think most of my you can work... tell I have some. I don't know if it's ADHD or uh, like some undiagnosed something. No, no, no. Here. You're, you're... Uh, they, like imagine me sitting down to like read a book cover to cover. <laughs> I suffer from the same thing, but I think the you know the bulk of our work in full consequence investing is focused on the overlap that you mentioned, right? Where things are, and it's actually harder to find than you realize. A lot of people say that there is overlap in their strategy, and you kind of dig in and you understand that maybe maybe not. And so, the bulk of the work is identifying and building conviction around thing you know strategies that are really taking advantage of a financial opportunity set while also pursuing social or environmental environmental impact. To the other points, maybe I'll get to the concessionary piece last. Um, to the point of, you know, where there's a strategy that has a lot of uh, return potential, but doesn't necessarily have impact or impact is sort of not applicable to the strategy. We obviously do a lot of that in our portfolios. The key thing is making sure that at least from a risk mitigation perspective, those teams have the right processes in place to to incorporate that lens into their risk management, right? And sometimes when you think about that and you talk to the team and they're like, oh, this is a great financial opportunity. And you ask, well, what about this regulatory risk? Or what about, you know, this adverse impact on consumers or on the climate that, by the way, can, you know, translate into regulatory action, they're kind of like deer in the headlight, then you have your answer, right? So we try to make sure if we're invested in those types of strategies that they are integrating that risk mitigation angle of what FCI does. But I think the other aspect of this that's very important is time horizon, right? A lot of these large social or environmental challenges, think about climate change, the, the mechanism of that getting priced into, let's say, security prices is long-term because these are long-term challenges. And if you're, let's say, a private equity investor who's investing for the next 10, 15 years, there's, a, there's, you know, there's alignment in terms of your time horizon and the time horizon through which these challenges and these risks show themselves and get priced. But if you're a hedge fund manager, for example, doing credit or, you know, distress arbitrage or, or you know, shorter term where you, your, you know, average hold period for a given security or a given investment is six to nine months, you know, the, the two degree world is, doesn't come into your horizon for the next six to nine months. So maybe it's not as important that you're like, you know, looking at transition pathways when you're investing into an arbitrage opportunity. And that's okay, right? And there's a role for that type of strategy in every portfolio or not in every portfolio, but in many portfolios. And and the bar might be a little bit different for things that have inherently shorter time horizons. But for most of what we do, you know, we have a strong bias towards fundamental long-term type investors and investment strategies. And for most of that, you know, these large social environmental challenges are material to pricing over the long term. 
How do you think about team and, and track record? Uh, and I ask because, you know, I used to sell uh, data storage infrastructure software and hardware many moons ago. And um, and there was a joke that no one ever got fired for, um, you know, for buying IBM, right? At the same time, an abstract could come along with a better product, like one that like is, you know, is smaller, is faster, is more reliable, is cheaper, is more modular, is easier to scale, more flexible, whatever. But like, but it's not from IBM. It's from, like, how do we know this company's even going to still be around in five years? Um, and so, if we if we if we base our whole infrastructure on it, or or a meaningful part of it, there's 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 big risk. Um, so, how do you think about that as it relates to funds? The equivalent, I guess, would be no one no one's ever gotten fired for buying Sequoia Fund eighty two. Um, uh, and, you know, what does that, what does that mean from an emerging manager standpoint that maybe, um, you know, has some novel ideas, but not as much of a track record, at least, um, uh, you know, working on that strategy with that team. I think I mentioned earlier that sort of our process and approach starts with the belief that we don't have to be anywhere and do anything. And we bring that to our work on emerging managers, right? I would say you know, when as it relates to climate-related investments, for example, we recognize that that's an opportunity set that we have some level of conviction around. And there are few teams that have existing long track records. If you really filtered the universe of folks that could tackle the climate opportunity set by folks that have had, you know, 10 years of track record, you would end up with a handful of names, right? A handful of teams. And by the way, half of them might have terrible track records because they got caught up in climate tech 1.0 earlier on. And that, you know, raises more flags than it, than it helps build conviction. And so, you know, we recognize there are, as I mentioned earlier, that there are really interesting groups of investors coming together around this theme to take advantage of this opportunity set. And then evidence of that is we have a lot of generalist managers, let's say in venture and private equity and public equities that are now identifying decarbonization as a core theme for their theses going forward over the next few years, right? Um, these aren't climate experts. They just know that this is a compelling opportunity set. And so, you know, we have on the margin higher tolerance for new teams coming together, maybe without shared track records around this theme. But we look at emerging teams sort of in the same way across all of our asset classes and across all of our strategies. And so, you know, it's different when it's a, you know, I was an investor at this other fund that maybe Hall Capital was already partnered with and I'm spinning out to do something climate focused because that was part of what we were doing at a generalist fund before. And now I want to dedicate a whole strategy to it and build a team. Um, or, you know, we are two different teams from two different funds that each have a track record, but we're coming together to build a dedicated strategy here. And that helps us sort of kick the tires on, again, what is the proof of success for this team executing on this opportunity set? And often, you know, and this is maybe back to our size, it might not make sense for us to back the first time team around the, around the given theme. One, because we don't have to be anywhere. Two, because that might not be scalable for, for a scale of capital. And three, because, you know, we don't think this opportunity set is going away. And that's part of why it's compelling, right? 
if I thought that the climate compelling and and scary as hell, but but yes, a- absolutely. But if I thought that like the window of investing around decarbonization is closing by Q3 this year, then we should probably not invest in it at all, <laughs> right? And because I think the opportunity set is available and sustainable over a longer period of time, we can afford to wait until there is a little bit more evidence of success for a given team sometimes. That's not to say that we don't get over that threshold um, ever. We've done several things with first-time teams. We've done, we've anchored funds around this sort of climate theme, especially over the last couple of years. But those, you know, have been groups where we have had other ways of evaluating, again, the proof of success. I want to go back to the last thing you asked on the concessionary uh, piece on this. Oh, yeah, exactly. Yeah, we didn't hit that. That'd be great. Thank you. Good catch. So I'm very focused on concessionary impact investments, not, you know, doing harm out there in the market by providing low costs of capital funding to an ecosystem that then, you know, sort of gets rid of sustainably funded, normal cost of capital, other businesses that compete with it. And then if this low cost of capital isn't sustained, you end up with a outcome that is worse than where you started. And a clear example of that is, this is not in the climate space, but in microfinance, across emerging economies, you saw some of this, right? You saw a lot of low cost capital. For whatever reason, I, I went to VC subsidizing ride sharing. It's not an impact analogy, but it's, 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 it's you know, it's, it's, it's not dissimilar. Similar. Yeah. But let me stick to the microfinance because I, you know, don't want to, don't want to make my friends upset. But in microfinance, you had a, you know, low cost of capital lending happening in communities where maybe there was one bank that wasn't very active in lending and the competition was really sort of predatory uh, otherwise. And you flooded that market with low cost concessionary capital and the bank packed up and left. And any other available form of financing also packed up and left because because they couldn't compete, right? And there was a downturn in the economy or whatever, the LPs dried up and there's surprise, no more microfinance money coming into that community. And now you're, you've ended up with a community that has no access to financing rather than just, you know, bad access to financing or access to maybe predatory financing. And so we've been focused on this. So where we've landed is we would do things and we have done things that we would describe as impact first. But we don't do those things if we think it's just the same investment strategy as another with a lower cost of capital, Right. We would only do it if there's some other trade-off. For example, this is a nascent market where it's really hard to establish what the right expected risk-adjusted return should be. Right? Could be in, you know, we did a we did a set of transactions around climate that were focused on def, you know, uh, preventing forest fires in California. It was a really creative structured credit strategy. And it was really, no one's done it before. So it was really hard to figure out what the right expected risk return is. Or, you know, we've done a strategy where it's a mix of project finance and private equity and, and some other, you know, 
bells and whistles in that strategy. And again, no one had done it in this way. And it was hard to figure out what the right risk adjusted return expectations should be. So we might, you know, do that as an impact first, probably for clients that have an explicit focus on focus on climate themes. It would, that wouldn't go into all of our <laughs> portfolios. Or most, most prevalently, there's a trade-off in terms of liquidity. So maybe you're not getting paid for your liquidity trade-off. Maybe you're not, you're not sure what this market should look like. And sometimes it's also, you know, there's a team that's experimenting with interesting ways of compensating themselves. So for example, we made an investment where the team was getting compensated their carry entirely based on an impact, uh, you know, meeting a set of impact metrics, right? So there was no financial incentive for the team. It was purely based on whether they can, you know, reduce emissions by a certain amount through their investments. And so that's interesting. We wanted to support that. We don't think that strategy is concessionary out there in the market. They're not giving money away at a lower cost than other players in the market. But we also, as I mentioned earlier, are really focused on organizations and what makes organizations tick and what drives people and how they're compensated. And this is one where they're not incentivized in the same way as other, let's say, private equity investors in terms of driving financial returns. So we categorize that as an impact first opportunity. And we you know, put that in portfolios that, again, had an explicit focus, but wanted to be supportive of that experimentation with compensation structures. Well, there's so many topics we haven't covered yet. There's no way we're going to get to all of them. There are a couple I want to make sure we hit before I, l- I let you go. Uh, what One is in terms of what you're seeing out there in, in the market. So we're recording in uh, early April of t- 2023. Uh, how much has the denominator effect um, factored in with, with your clients as it relates to their alternative asset investments generally? And then same question uh, for alternative asset investments with more of an impact focus. So that's definitely a real dynamic. Maybe your audience might not be as familiar with how this works, but you know, if you have a portfolio that comprises of liquid strategies and illiquid strategies, your liquid investments have gotten marked down on a daily basis over the last course of the last year. Your illiquid investments, let's say your venture capital, your private equity, your private real estate, haven't gotten marked down because typically in those strategies, the, the valuations are marked based on subsequent transactions. So let's say you are a VC investor, you invested in a startup at some valuation. Um, you don't really change that mark typically unless you have other reason to believe it's now valued uh, less or more, usually it's geared towards or geared based off of the a subsequent round that that startup has raised, which may be a down round or an up round. And, and we know that the pace of fundraising and the pace of those transactions in private markets have slowed materially over the last year. And so there haven't been a lot of those subsequent transactions. So what you see, uh, you know, if you're, again, an asset owner with that portfolio of liquids and illiquids, is that if you had an allocation that you thought was X percent to illiquid investments and Y percent to liquids, you now have an outsized allocation to illiquids just because of that dynamic. So out the gate, you know, committing the, an incremental dollar to an illiquid investment today probably faces more obstacles than it did a couple of years ago. We observe that and we act based on that 
And we don't let that get in the way of us staying the course with our private investment sort of program. The beauty of investing in private equity or venture, for example, is that you invest vintage after vintage and you kind of look at it as a program, not individual investments. And putting this denominator effect aside, when you look at the environment today in the markets, you might look at it and say, actually, this is maybe quite an attractive opportunity set for, say, a VC investor or for a private equity investor or a real estate investor. And so we want to make sure we're committing capital and deploying capital through this environment. On the margin, it might be a question of sizing and a question of the number of relationships. So it's a balance between, you know, not wanting to allocate a lot more illiquid dollars in a portfolio that is already, you know, facing liquidity challenges and making sure that we're, um, still deploying capital through what could be a pretty attractive vintage for um, private investments. My last question is is more around um, philanthropic capital and how much you advise, uh, get involved with advising clients, if at all, in what to do with their philanthropic dollars, especially because uh, you know I learned recently, and, and we've taken advantage of a bit, the fact that you can use things like donor-advised funds or you know philanthropic capital to do... Uh, private investing, whether it be in funds or in uh, companies directly. And I wasn't aware of that. I feel like a lot of people that have this philanthropic capital aren't aware of that. And um, yeah, and I'm, ju I'm just curious how active you are in that area and how much you think about that, if at all. So, you know, we manage a lot of investment portfolios for endowments and many foundations or family foundations. Um, most of our clients have very active sort of philanthropic uh, efforts on their own. We don't really advise on the grant making part of giving. We work with partners and we introduce our clients to partners who can devise some more thoughtful strategies around that. That's not a core capability that we have. We share our thoughts. And again, we have, we tend to have comprehensive relationships with our, uh, with our clients, but where we probably add the most value there, for example, is, you know, how much can you afford to give? And what would that path look like over the next X number of years? On your question about, you know, sort of, I would view the second part of the question on the donor advice funds as sort of a question around the sources of capital for impact investments. And that's actually something that I and my team are actively exploring now, because we um, have to manage a lot of, again, philanthropic pools that you know, have really compelling giving strategies on the grant making side, but might not be invested fully aligned with the giving strategy and the giving goals. And so we wanna make sure that we have a way to, to do that and integrate that and respond to that need. Um, we also manage assets for community foundations, which might have donor advice funds underneath and um, might want to offer those underlying donors ways to put their investment capital to work that's aligned with what their giving goals are. And so that's a lot of the work that's done in terms of, you know, back to FCI, like that overlap of where you have environmental social impact as well as financial returns, but also part of what we were talking about under our version of impact first, uh, where you might take certain trade-offs um, for, you know, if you really care about a given set of outcomes. 
um, you might on the margin, you know, have higher tolerance for liquidity or, or nascency of markets, et cetera. But that's an open question. And I think there's also some um, sort of bills in Congress around, you know, dictating what donor advised funds may or may not be able to do. And, and so that's an area that we're, we're watching closely. But on the grant side or grant making side, we don't actively advise our clients. Ideally, uh, it would be a benefit to the world and to asset owners, presumably, to get more capital uh, allocated in a full consequence way. Uh, what are the barriers that you see to more of that occurring? And if you could change anything uh, that could unlock faster progress in that area, that's maybe outside of the scope of your control, what would you change and how would you change it? The reason I'm doing what I'm doing, and the reason I came back to Hull Capital to do this work was because when you look at long-term social and planetary challenges, and you look at the scale and magnitude of that, and the, and you think through the types, the type of capital that could really tackle those challenges, that doesn't care about returns this quarter, next quarter, next two years, it's really not a lot of pools of capital, right? And when you look at the client base of Hall Capital, it's again, families with multi-generational investment horizons, endowments with perpetual investment horizons that are really well set up to take advantage of opportunities that come out of those challenges. And that's what makes me excited. And, 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 and I think a barrier to that is more, you know, the, the, the onus is on me and the onus is on you, Jason, to prove that you could do this. You could have impact. You could tackle those challenges and generate return and, you know, achieve the financial goals that these groups and these, this type of capital has. And so that's a little bit my life's work. Um, if I had the, my drudges and, and could get rid of something in the world would be this sort of quarter over quarter short termism, which really prevents us looking beyond you know, you saw some of that last year. Oh, energy, you know, traditional energy ripped. And so therefore, you know, investing in renewables is a bad idea. Well, let's think through, you know, the next two decades. Let's think through 2050. If you're looking back at 2050, where would you like to be? Which side of this transition would you like to invest behind? That becomes more clear. So having that long-term horizon, which I think Hall Capital is pretty well set up to have our clients, you know, having that become more prevalent throughout the marketplace would, would really make a difference. I, I love that. And the answer to this last question might be, uh, nobody, Jason, please leave me alone. But, um, uh, but, but for anyone out there listening, who's inspired by the work that you're doing, uh, are, are, is, is there anyone that it would be helpful for you to hear from, or is there anything that we can do, uh, you know, as MCJ or as uh, MCJers that are tuning in uh, that that could uh, that could assist the work that you're doing and the work that you want to see uh, done more broadly? You know, I learned so much from your podcast, and a lot of it is operators doing the actual groundwork of this climate transition or energy transition and decarbonization. I'm really excited about this sort of series that you're exploring, talking to investors, both GPs and LPs, and that's helpful. That's more um, helpful for me to hear and learn about what other groups that are 
tackling this from an investment lens doing and how they're thinking about it. I think one area that may be on your radar may not be on your radar. And I think maybe, you know, might become relevant in a few months as there's more developments there is I would love to hear more from people who are underground doing the legwork of some of these big regulatory changes, right? So we have the IRA, everyone's excited about it. A lot of the devil is in the detail and a lot of that guidance is expected to come out shortly. It would be a a podcast episode I would really look forward to, to have someone really walk us through all, you know, some of the different incentives that are captured in that and how, how that, you know, what the mechanism of that is in terms of flowing through to businesses and their unit economics. Um, Cause that's relevant for, you know, your broader community that are doing again, the, the groundwork from an operation perspective, but also really relevant to GPs who are building investment theses around these uh, themes and, and, uh, and regulatory incentives. And it's also really relevant to me um, to be able to understand that landscape. That's a great idea. We we should definitely do that. And and last question, Mohammed, is 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 just anything I didn't ask that I should have, or do you have any parting words for listeners? No, you asked quite a quite a few things. Um, this has been a really great conversation for me. And actually, I, I was when we got disconnected for a bit, I was thinking, wow, if I you know when I go back to work after this, I'm going to be so much more energized now, having sort of uh, explained it out loud. Um, so thank you for that. I feel the same. And I, and I, I think, uh, I mean, yeah, I don't want to overpromise, but I, I think you're going to inspire a lot of people, um, with, with this episode as well. Uh, I mean, I, both the, um, the mindset that, that you have as a firm, which is refreshing, but also your willingness to share it more openly, which so many aren't. Um, so, uh, so thanks for being brave and being an early adopter on this new, series. Uh, and, uh, and thanks for the work that you do as well. It's, uh, it, it's inspiring, truly. Thank you for the work that you do. I've learned a lot from your work. Thank you, Jason. Thanks again for joining us on the My Climate Journey podcast. At MCJ Collective, we're all about powering collective innovation for climate solutions by breaking down silos and unleashing problem-solving capacity. If you'd like to learn more about MCJ Collective, visit us at mcjcollective.com. And if you have a guest suggestion, let us know that via Twitter at mcjpod. For weekly climate op-eds, jobs, community events, and investment announcements from our MCJ Venture Funds, be sure to subscribe to our newsletter on our website. Thanks, and see you next episode. Thanks.